0: Good night, good morning, and everything else in between. What's up, guys? It's Denny. Let's get to the specials. According to an article in the Wall Street Journal, President Trump has repeatedly expressed an interest in the U.S. buying Greenland. And guys, I really wish that was the joke. But you guys 100% know Trump thinks he's buying Iceland. Guys, not sure if you saw this story, but Netflix has signed the Game of Thrones creators to a five-year $250 million deal. Some would say that this is them riding off into the sunset, but I'm sure that they would prefer riding off into a dark, ominous forest. Oh boy, guys, the NFL's back in the news. Jay-Z's Roc Nation has partnered with the league to assist with entertainment deals and to start a social activism campaign. And knowing what we know about Roger Goodell, he's going to be really surprised when he finds out that social activism actually helps victims rather than blames them. It's been a pretty hot summer, I'm sure if you guys have been around, you've, you've watched. been like, wow, a lot of hot streaks. Well, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration announced on Thursday that July was actually the hottest month ever on record. In fact, it was so hot that even Mother Nature was like, am I an influencer? And guys, finally today, Bernie Sanders released a video on his YouTube channel, with Cardi B. Everybody was talking about it. The senator met up with the rapper at a Detroit nail salon to talk about police brutality. The economy and healthcare. You know, this proves once and for all that you can Google a 77 year old man and 26 year old woman meet up and still get a wholesome result. My name is Danny Gallagher, and you're listening to later. Live from New York. You are listening to sometimes glamorous, always cantankerous, borderline magnanimous, audio art of the new James Brown. Move over, Charlie Brown. There's a new kid in town. Whether it's 5 o'clock while you are or not, you better take your shot because a later Friday big show is coming in hot. Welcome on into the show. You made it. You're here later with Denny Gallagher. What's up? How's your week going? On the show today is drummer extraordinaire, podcaster extraordinaire, writer extraordinaire. You know him from bands like the Gaslight Anthem, Mercy Union. That's right, if you haven't guessed who I'm talking about by now, it's Benny Horowitz. He's here. You'll be hearing from him in just a bit. But I just wanted to go over some quick housekeeping. This is your first time listening. Welcome thank you for finding us be sure to rate subscribe review uh, if you have any comments concerns questions or anything you just want to add hit us up at laterpodcasts at gmail.com normally right here i go through monologue i go on through what i've been riffing on but the conversation with ben was so good we talk for a while all-encompassing we talk some sports We talk some music, we talk, and of course you know I go through the Gaslight Anthem with him. Come on. Come on. Anyway, without any further ado, the man, the myth, the legend himself, on the other side, it's Benny Horowitz.
1: I'm an open book. (laughs) You got me in my element, too. Oh my gosh, yeah, no, it's...
0: It's cozy. Should we explain this to the people? Yeah, I mean, in case I never make it out of this basement, my Mama. I'm in Jersey City. Um, a couple blocks down from the apartment here with Benny Horowitz. Drummer, writer, podcaster, does it all. Benny, what's up, man? Not
1: a lot. Sometimes I do think about that. I'm in here playing drums, and I'm like, shit. I'm behind like four <laughs> locked doors in a creepy basement, and the building, people think, is probably abandoned half right. the time. I'm like if something goes down no one knows i'm in here you'll find my like it'll be like uh, Pompeii,
0: right exactly you yeah. yeah we're gonna be stuck in, in this position just like doing like a podcast they're gonna be like what was the podcast forever we could be etched in
1: time together now you never know man
0: Podfather, my ass yeah. that's where it's <laughs> <Exactly>. at <man. laughs> so we're here in jersey city probably two blocks from one of the greatest bagel establishments in this great state but uh that's a fact Jersey City. You probably could have lived anywhere in the world. Why why Jersey City? Outside of the fact that it's the largest city in New Jersey and you don't want to cross the river.
1: Well, it just became the largest city in New Jersey. Newark Newark was the champion for, for a long time. Yeah. I think the new gentrification of Jersey City has, <laughs> has surpassed it. But uh, it, it was it was sort of happenstance. I actually when Gaslight was just getting started and going full time, I like basically like stopped paying rent. We were touring so much Mm. that um, I wasn't keeping a place. I had most of my stuff in storage. And when I was home, I was either crashing with my brother or getting, like, a motel room for a week, (laughs) my buddy Mike's house, like, just a few places. Somewhere around that time, I met my now wife. Ironically, I had, like, all of my clothes in, like, a garbage bag and stuff when I met her. And... She was living in Tribeca when I met her. I was homeless when I was home. I was staying with her. Classic New York love story. Yeah, yeah. And she was losing her place and was about to go out to, like, you know, bumfuck Brooklyn to, to live. And I was still mostly, like, rooted around the New Brunswick area, you know. And uh I was like, yo, for real, like, you move out there. I'm fucking never going out there. Like, like especially the idea then, especially when I lived in New Brunswick about like hauling out to Brooklyn. I'm All like, right. I'm willing to do that like four times a year. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so her, uh, she had, her brother was living in Jersey City at the time. Him and his girlfriend, we had been here a couple of times and it ended up being just a good in-between spot where she could stay by the city. She was working in the city and I could still keep a car and be in New Jersey, which was paramount to me and um and then before you know it like it's like 11 12 years later and raising my kids here wow. whole fucking deal you know so crazy yeah
0: so you're a big sports fan a uh, yes. big nets fan you yes. may has it struck you that you may be the spike lee of the new jersey slash brooklyn nets <laughs> you know it <laughs> who's a bigger it, fan like what, me dad? or spike no, 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 no. Just in general. Just well, in general. J.C. doesn't count. Cause somebody I. I. actually
1: didn't. just said that on Twitter. The only person, and it, this is going back to Jersey, like the only people who used to go to Jersey Nets games that are of, of note at all were uh, the guy who played Gilligan on Gilligan's Island. I don't even know his name, right. but they'd show him on the camera <laughs> once in a while. And Danny Aiello from Do the Right Thing, mm-hmm. ironically. Yeah. You know, Spike Lee's boy. And he was always at Nets games. And he'd be like, hey, Danny. And he'd give like a thumbs up. <laughs> Um, and that's when the Nets were at you know out in the swamp. At that time, they were selling like the second half of upper deck for like eight bucks, ten bucks, like trying to get people in the door. It was pretty pitiful at those games, you know. And then when they got to Brooklyn, all of a sudden the uh, the bar went way higher for cool people. You know what I mean? Because that first season, Jay Z, you know, is at like almost every home game, sitting right next to the bench. He's got Rihanna with him half the time. You know all of a sudden, like out of is doing promos, and uh you know like like cool hip hop artists are doing promos, and I'm up in the upper deck in my season <laughs> seats, you know what I mean, like with my Brooke Lopez shirt oh my just gosh. like I'm like, you know what, I chose the wrong sport like if uh if I was like a die hard hockey fan, I can imagine oh my gosh, yeah. tons of hockey players probably sweat gaslight, you know what I mean? I could have all these like inroads and you know box seats and shit but i decided to like the nets you know my favorite sport basketball by far yeah. where like you know more often than not your average nba player is not a big you know contemporary <laughs> rock and roll fan right. it's just like not, you know funny. so i'm like i even had a funny thing where i um it took me years to even tell my ticket rep what i did because i just didn't want to be like a dick about it you know yeah and uh They have that club at the Barclays Center, the like the Billboard Lounge. Mm. And we were down. One day I brought my brother-in-law. He's like, yo, bring him out to half court to watch them shoot around before the second half. And not because of like any hookup, just Mm. because I'm a season ticket holder and I got to do this. And we were like waiting by the Billboard Lounge and I see all these people pouring out. And I was like, man, I just got to tell this guy I just played a Billboard event, and like, and like, I bet I'll get free shit. And I just couldn't do it. man. (laughs) I can never, I can never cash in the card either. That's fine. I want it to happen organically, right?
0: You want to be recognized,
1: exactly. I don't want (laughs) to fucking play off like that, you know. I'm a Mets fan first and foremost. I'm a drummer, you know. Like, and if you put the two together, like, cool. But yeah, I'm not good at like, like, slutting myself like
0: that. (laughs) So what made you stay with them when they moved to Brooklyn? Because I know a lot of people in New Jersey were pissed when that happens. Me, for example, I was a Nets fan. We were season ticket holders. We did the whole, whole, whole thing. In Jersey. Right, yeah. So cool. Grew up here, did Did the whole thing. Ironically, when they moved to Brooklyn was about the time I, I went to college. Okay. Started working in media out in Milwaukee. All My right. My boss became a minority owner of the Bucks just before they got good. Got to know Giannis his rookie year. So I'm like, dude, what have the Nets ever done for me outside oh, of you it's jumped? Like, I, I I jumped. You're
1: hardcore box now.
0: Can't go back. All right. And, and then they got Jake hit and then Brooks. So I kind of feel like they've been. Oh, I was
1: right at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I there might have been if you told me a story five years ago or something, I might have been like, Yo, what the fuck, man? <laughs> it's not cool. We need all the fans we can get. But I, I truly believe in like in like sports as entertainment these days. Yeah. You know what I mean? And if you. Are just into a team for whatever reason, that's who you want to watch <laughs> and spend your money towards. Like, I don't, I don't give a fuck, but um, I actually didn't care when they moved to Brooklyn. Mm. I um, I was already living here yeah. in Jersey City, so like, like 45 minutes, yeah, you know, Brooklyn to the swamp is actually better for me. I can actually have the option to take trains, yeah. you know, and be on public transit. I actually loved the two years they were in Newark.
0: Oh, that was perfect when they were at
1: Prudential Center when they were building Barclays, I mean now I could decide to go to a seven thirty tip at like ten after seven. <laughs> I didn't have kids yet or yeah. nothing. I just like say to my girlfriend, I'm like, yo, I'm going. like I'm just running, I'll be back in like two hours. Easy. <laughs> Ticket was oh cheap. Um, but I remember when the Nets went to the finals in like O two, O three, mm-hmm. um I was buying tickets for those games like literally like at the door of the stadium. Yeah. You know what I mean? They couldn't sell out the stadium for and this was not like some schlub they had Shaq Kobe Lakers yeah. coming in. They had the uh Spurs, Spurs right in the middle team of team, yeah, right thing. in the middle of all of it. And the and the the games were so like underattended and the Nets fans like barely showed up, you know. <laughs> I was at them. It yeah. was it was like fairly painful to be so into something but not like feeling the thing, you know? Yeah. I'm like, this is beautiful basketball. Like do you realize who's on this team like at this time you know what i mean you're watching prime Kenyon martin flying through the sky like getting tossed by jason kidd and like just and uh it blew my mind and at that time it was like anything's on the table there was talk about the nets being sold for a while moving for a while so when it happened i was like yeah fuck it like it's easier for me and then to top it off my mom and that whole side of the family's from brooklyn so i have like a a familial tie that actually like allows me to to be doubly proud in that way, which is good, you know.
0: It's been super cool, and I bet you you've gone meet a lot of people through through your travels. But a uh, worked at NBA Radio for like a hot sec. Yeah, and he was like given like like the scoop about how like Jason Kidd like ended his NBA career because he brought him in for that ten day contract in Milwaukee, and then seven oh. days through, he like calls him in as like. Yeah, right, right, right. So Jason Kidd ironically ended Kenyon Martin's NBA career.
1: Wow. I mean, the Jason Kidd relationship is a tricky one Mm. for a Nets fan because he has helped us greatly and abandoned us twice, you know, as a player and as a coach. So, like, but at the same time, like, the best basketball I've ever witnessed live for a team I liked was brought (laughs) by him twice again. You know what I mean? (laughs) Even, like... You know, that trade gets a lot of shit. Obviously, because it was maybe one of the worst trade. I don't even have to say which one it but, is. I can yeah. just refer to it as, as the, the trade. trade. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, like, that first year or two was fun. The team was fun. Yeah. You know, even though, like, they didn't get to where they wanted to be. Like, KG still had some gas. Is like, prime Darren Williams, Joe Johnson looked good. Like, those teams were fun.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and, and and they were, you know, well-coached, and, like, it all, like, was cool, Um, so, yeah, I, I, and then, you know, he's obviously, like, a piece of shit in his personal (laughs) life, so that's where the distinction, I mean, this is a distinct, a cultural distinction I have a hard time with in, in a lot of ways, because how many of your favorite people of the last 25 years, especially in pop culture, have been outed as like the worst fucking people you know any of yours yeah um, uh, i've lost a bunch yeah you know
0: and then it, it, it's worse when you actually know the people sure
1: <laughs> yeah yeah now you're under the belly of the yeah. beast maybe i shouldn't get into this yeah right I,
0: I i think we should move on to net's win totals uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, uh what do they got us at right caesars now? has had it at 47 and a half okay for next season yeah without kd uh, yeah You You know, in
1: the the East, I can see it, you know, because like even if you if you just repeated the team that they had out there last season, you could see like a a progression to 47 wins like with a healthy Levert or something. So, yeah, I think it's realistic. Um, But I'm trying to temper expectations, you know what I mean? For a lot of reasons, because like as excited as I am about Katie and Kyrie, like, I thought it was a smart move. You know what I mean? Like, a team like the Nets, you have a chance to do this, do it. Like, 100 out of 100 times. But there is a high probability that this could go really (laughs) badly. You know? Um, So, like, I want to, like, put the expectation, like, I I don't need a championship out of the Nets next year. I don't need 55 wins. I don't need even a conference finals. I need growth. I need Kyrie not to lose his shit for, like, an entire season and maybe play, like, 65, 70 games, I'll take that. You know what I mean? Even just an event-free Kyrie Irving I'll take. Yeah. Like, without any of the, the jazz, you know? <laughs> um, and then I just want to see that core grow, you know? I want to see, like, Allen and Levert and those guys, like, take the next step. I think lost in the conversation was getting and Prince, mm-hmm. like, a nice, young, rotational nice player under, like, a couple more manageable years of contract and he still has upside so like and then that's are interesting and good um but i just hope like everybody like anybody in boston what they're predicting right now is my worst case scenario <laughs> that i don't want to happen but i think there's a lot of things in our favor you know right. this time
0: especially with uh actin will handle him a lot different than yeah, uh for sure Stevens did because Stevens is very stoic. Yeah. And I feel like Kyrie needs, has always done well with a coach that will get in his face a little bit.
1: And Atkinson has like, one of the cool things about the way the nets are running is Atkinson so clearly has the full backing of ownership and like management Mm. to the point that I think he's willing to like, all right, Kyrie, like you're sitting the next six minutes. Dinwiddie's running it. You know what I mean? Like, I think he's actually willing to do that. Because I don't think he would be nervous about, like, losing his position as a result. Not that Stevens was either. Like, I think he's obviously comfortable in his job.
0: Maybe that, not anymore. But I think the biggest question of the next season will be when Kyrie comes in to his office and be like, Coach, what does government mean to you? How he handles that question. Right.
1: <laughs> I think he'll be hip. They seem hip. They seem woke. I just learned that word. <laughs> Abracadabra. Um, yeah, because, like that's one of the things i'm actually hoping for is like yeah boston's a cool town Mm. in a lot of ways but boston is also like wound around itself like seven fucking times that town is tight yeah it's old school it's tight it's got like a way of looking and seeing things that is sometimes like romantic and cool and sometimes like asphyxiating you know so a guy like Kyrie, who i get the sense It's just even, like, kind of fucking around half the time. Like, I don't think that guy thinks the earth is flat. No. I really don't. I think he's trolling a little bit and seeing what he can get away with and kind of, like... And I think there's more room for that. There's a lot more, like, room for for just people being who they are in New York. Like, even though people say the press is so nasty. Like, if you lose for a continued period of time, yeah, you're going to get killed, Mm. you know? But if you win... You're going to be, you know, like you could be mayor, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, and
0: probably do a better job with the MTA <laughs> than the I'd imagine.
1: <laughs> Let's have Derek jeter run the MTA. I be mean, he, can't,
0: he can't run the Marlins. You expect him to run the MTA? Actually, I was just thinking, the about, Marlins aren't, aren't too bad this year. You know what, though? I'm
1: looking at the roster, though. Like, I actually just saw this last night, and I'm looking at the roster, and I'm like, wait seeing neil walker granderson Starlin castro like just all these like 30 something Mm. kind of i'm like what's going on there like there if there's not any serious activity going on in triple and double a right now like i don't know what the plan is here exactly because they're already out of the season like these guys should be up getting getting at bats you know why i love the blue jays watching everybody's kids right now dante, watching
0: vlad guerrero jr and, and craig crushed, biggio's yeah, kid yeah, right. and uh just a couple days oh ago they gosh. called
1: up uh beau bichette dante bichette's <laughs> kid which i'm like holy shit I, all these guys it makes me feel kind of old but yeah. it's also funny
0: so going into next basketball season i don't know if there's a whole bunch of new duos yeah which ones uh leaving katie and kairi out because that's more of a next season conversation which sure. uh duos are you excited about
1: i mean the obvious like LA thing is like just fascinating, yeah. you know. Um, and
0: whether J Kid will blow up another franchise,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, I think the Lakers thing is like, I mean, obviously, way more destined for insanity than the Clippers thing, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? The Clippers have like, I mean, Kawhi's caused a lot of fuss in the last few years, but kind of for like a lot of the right reasons, right. you know. It's not like that guy's doing like crazy shit off the court or like saying anything yeah. let alone saying the wrong thing. Yeah. You know, um but like when i see the the Lakers set up with what just happened with magic, the coaching staff they brought in, DeMarcus Cousins, Rondo again, like um you know, minutes restriction LeBron, like, shout out Danny Green 30 million in 2 years. Yeah, you know, and a, like good player, you know, but um yeah, no, I think the Clippers I lean towards as, mm. like, the thing I'm most excited about. Um, then, you know, but then there's some of the, like, under undervalued ones I'm excited. Like, I can't wait to see what Donovan Mitchell becomes, like, with Mike Conley. Mm. That's kind of fascinating, yeah. like, where he doesn't have to just, like, grab the ball and create offense, yeah. like, nine out of ten times. Something like that's a big one. Um, and then, I mean, i would love to see like somebody on the bucks like step up a little more so Giannis has like a running mate yeah i guess philly i mean who are the two in philly though is it is it joel and ben or is tobias with that max deal part of it i don't
0: think tobias when you get down to crunch time is the guy that you want in the playoffs i mean you've got to build it around the process and ben simmons right i mean he's not playing for australia for a reason
1: yeah well you saw his uh playing against like high school kids hitting like 20 footers and everyone's going crazy (laughs) 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 like bro i'll hit that shot i'll hit that shot every two out of three times
0: come on Uh, and i was
1: just looking at philly like i you know they just signed trey burke mm -hmm. and like he's their best three point shooter i think like right i think they just pulled their best three point shooter off the street (laughs) yesterday yeah right you know so you know that's the obvious problem with that team is like where is that where are those buckets yeah. going to come from? But there is a point. I, I'm in a chat with a couple friends of mine, music friends. One's diehard Sixers, one's diehard Knicks. So mm. we have, like, a yeah. funny thing going on. And there was a point last season I texted my friend Luke, who's the Sixers fan, being like, you know what? I was watching a Sixers game. I'm like, you know what? I don't care if Ben Simmons can shoot. I'm like, I'm watching him beat up the game four out of five other ways. Like, like i don't know if he's a max player or not but he's a starting point guard in mm. the nba and he's legit yeah. like that guy can affect the game in, in so many different ways and i'm like i watched jason Kidd as an example how many times could we bring him up but like you know he kind of painfully created that three-point shot like later in his career mm. that super ugly one you had to start <laughs> respecting but like besides for a nice drive or something like you weren't Covering right. Jay Kidd, like you didn't give a shit, like yeah. that wasn't his game, and how how good was he, and how yeah. much did he impact? So, but then I kind of like went to the playoffs and started reversing course again because <laughs> I'm like, yo, like once you get to the playoffs and people can game plan those smaller rosters and stuff, yeah. and they start pinning them down, like that's a problem, mm. you know, like you got to figure something else out. So, but I mean, you got to assume they're giving them that contract under the assumption that. Yeah. I mean, he's at least working on it <laughs>
0: it's funny that you brought up donovan mitchell before because i think uh you know or, or around the draft every year people love player comps and you know what i think people love even more than player comps i think they love band comps you guys oh have, uh, okay and subject to sure. that sure um sure. how do you feel about the idea of that and you hate them i think as much as the internet should the internet hates everything yet loves band comps I don't Wait, get
1: you know it. what's fun it's like I didn't even think about it until like just now, but you know how like one of those things with comps that always happens is like you start comping guys who just look like each other. You know what I mean? Like it happens all the time. Like name like a a white guy who's ever been comped against a black guy and vice versa. Like that happens 4% of the time. You know what I mean? Um, And in music, I find it the same way is like you can comp people based since it's all sort of like these weird opinion based Things That are going out there like You can comp on the weirdest shit And like my band has been Compared to things that like to me There's such a wildly loose Affiliation with just because Like oh they're from the same place Like I wonder like If Gaslight Anthem started in northern Florida Would it have just been replaced By Tom Petty instead of Bruce Springsteen If we weren't from New Jersey You know what I mean like and stuff like that Like and I do think there's like Uh, These funny little things that go into comps. But that being said, I don't find them annoying because because of how arbitrary I know they are. You know what I mean? And I know that the people who are writing these articles and who are... I mean, people are literally paid to create stories around things that aren't stories. I knew that for years, like, people had to ask a Bruce Springsteen question inside of the interview so he could be mentioned in the byline so they could view more readers you know what i mean Mm. like that's it's just the nature of the thing so like so no it doesn't bother me i think it's funny more often than not and the sports ones are just like (laughs) ridiculous you know i mean how many guys have you heard coming out like in the last 20 years who were the next lebron kobe michael you know what i mean like it kind of comps up like this you know (laughs)
0: It's funny. I I told you that on on Sundays I produced a show for Amino Hassan and yeah. Jason Jackson on NBA Radio on Sirius XM, and he used to work in the front office and, and used to have to do these scouting reports right. for the guys for the drafts. So he would like take the most random guy you've ever heard of, like uh, like Ricky Rubio is going to be the next. I don't know, like yeah. s- back a point guard. Haber yeah, yeah. he's this. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> But did he find, like, uh, the process of it just, like, silly, or is there any, like, real value to these comps?
0: There's value in in the sense that, like, you kind of get an idea of what you're getting, but it's more just along the lines to, like, be able to sell the franchise. If you tell New Orleans that they can have the next LeBron James, that's better than saying that you could have, like, I don't know, like, like the next... uh, Charles Barkley or sure. like even or the like next some, Tim
1: Duncan yeah right yeah. like
0: like nobody wants to hear that everybody wants a flashy name the the shoe sales and all that stuff and it's kind of funny also how that kind of like I feel like culture sports music whatever kind of builds a lot on nostalgia sure um, yeah, yeah yeah just wanted to go see that movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood which is 100% nostalgia right and do you think that there's a danger in buying into too much of nostalgia when it comes to culture
1: um. Yeah, of course and I think you're especially seeing that in like Political culture right now, you know what I mean Like how The one thing about becoming older That's interesting is like seeing how Quickly revisionist history Becomes a thing, you know what I mean Like I always had it in my head that like It took uh, Generations, even millennia For like the story to like trickle down In weird ways and be retold To the point that You can't really understand what's fact and fiction anymore. You know Mm. what I mean? To to a degree, and like some of the stuff that's happened in the last like you know twenty years since I've been an adult on this earth and have seen it, you know, sold one way, remembered another way, resold another way, and repackaged another way. Like I think people manipulate it to what they want. Mm. You know what I mean? I think bands can do that if they want. I think the idea that people started incessantly comparing us to Bruce Springsteen in the end helped our band because it opened us up to a th- million Bruce Springsteen fans. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. and if people didn't start doing that, I don't know. And sometimes, you know, like a label, the same way a um, PR team or a manager or something will like start making these comps, throwing these big names mm. out there because like they're trying to sell their client. Yeah, the same way bands have managers like calling people all the time trying to sell you you know what i mean And they're trying to sell you on the best thing so i think it's not only so easily manipulated i also think it can be dangerous and like used against people especially when you start like tying into things that that hit a personal level you know what i mean Mm. i like when when trump got elected one of one of the things i've always been fascinated with is like you know the confederacy and like the we will rise again thing it never made any fucking sense to me you know what i mean like like let alone not not politically agreeing with it i can never like usually i'm an empathetic person enough that i can understand where even um movements i don't like at least where their like impetus is coming from you know Mm. what i mean like they tend to make sense at least if you think about it long enough that one made no fucking (laughs) sense to me at all and I ended up reading a book that kind of opened my eyes to a couple of things. And one statistic that popped out was like, it was like, if you're a born and bred Southerner, you have like a one in six chance of currently being like tied to someone who was in the Confederate Army. Yikes. Like, meaning, like, you, you know, you can drive 20 minutes and potentially find a great grandfather in a Confederate cemetery. You know what I mean? You can tie your lineage to this. Yeah. The way I can tie my lineage to a European immigrant experience. Mm. You know what I mean? And then if you're from the North, you had something like a 1 in 20 or 25 chance of being connected to the Union Army, Mm. you know, for a variety of reasons. And, And that's one thing that struck a chord with me. I was like, all right, like, even though I don't agree, the fact that, like, you can find this connection is the reason you might be warmer to it and then on what i was just saying before and then i think that's where normal people are spun and manipulated right you know what i mean like i don't think normal people are as dumb as fucking liberals make them out to be too like they're not like people make a conscious decision to be racist they're not just like being puppet mastered all the time like you
0: know and a lot of it is is marketing I don't know yeah. if, if if you've been watching that that loudest voice show on Showtime, the Russell Crowe as, as as Roger Ailes. Oh no, and I haven't. It's really interesting how how he like managed to uh, get his message out there by you know like starting Fox News and then just going all in on, on the hard right because he's like we're not going to be able to crack the, the rest of the market, so we got to go yeah. where the viewers aren't. So a lot of I think when people talk about nostalgia. It's either an elevator pitch to try to get something made, like in Hollywood. Exactly. Or it's like a, 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 a way to further a marketing message.
1: Sure. So. Yeah, and somebody, um, I mean, more often than not, somebody is almost always capitalizing on it. Mm. you got to find, like, who those people are. <laughs> like, I even, uh, one time, we were playing a festival in Germany, and there was a big stand, like a merchandise stand, with, like, you know southern style relics you know Mm. what i mean big belt buckles and uh leonard skinner apparel and allman brothers and a bunch (laughs) of confederate flags with a bunch of german people you know what i mean and like
0: they probably connected to dukes of hazard yeah yeah. and
1: exactly and i i actually like it was one of those days i was just feeling a little frisky (laughs) and i went up and i was like i was like excuse me i'm like do you do you know what that is and you know where they're like yes confederacy Yeah you know and like And they said like this I'm like what what does it Mean to you like what is it and like Literally like you said like there Is nothing but a A casual Pop culture attachment to this flag You know what I mean yeah. like and that's what it got Brought yeah. to and that's where I think Like sometimes Where people say like The PC or something is too uh, Too aggressive mm. But like You put a confederate flag on a super popular TV show for 10 years with characters you like, that Mm -hmm. you're designed to like. Actors are literally trained to make you like them Um, (laughs) and be charming and be somebody, even if you hate, that has some, like, charming to it. You know, like Christoph Waltz in *Inglorious Bastards. (laughs) How do you not have some, like, attraction to that, like, person in a weird way, you know? And I think that's the danger of it is not the people who are hip to it and educated to it. You can make a very conscious choice to be like, oh, this is what this means. I can put it here while I'm entertained by this show or something like that if you're willing to do that. But it's like the trail off and it's like the people. That's like what what's sad about it to me and where like just marketing is all of it.
0: Let's take a quick time out to talk about the latest book from Steve Russian, Knights in White Castle, a memoir. Picking up where he left off on his acclaimed memoir, Stingray Afternoon, Steve Russian brilliantly captures the bygone era and the thrills of new adulthood in the early 80s. From a menial summer job at a suburban Bennigans to all the first that go along with college, this deeply touching odyssey will remind any reader of those special moments when they too went from innocence to experience. You can pre-order your copy now or you can pick up your copy wherever books are sold on August 20th. And now, back to Benny. Do you mind if we talk some music for a little bit? No. I mean, we're in this fantastic drum Surrounded room. Surrounded by drums. Uh, 50 drums around yeah, right? us. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, Gaslight Anthem, okay? Yeah. But before Gaslight a lot of people don't know about This Charming Man. Based off the Smiths album?
1: Yeah, I didn't name that band, though. No. So I was in This Charming Man for a short time, but I did not start This Charming Man. Okay. But it is from that,
0: yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> Take me through like the process. You're in the band. How do you go from that band to Gaslight Anthem? Just kind of quick origin story.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to it, but like somewhere around you know 0- 06, I guess. Like Brian, maybe 05 at that point. Like Brian had gone on tour with this charming man, and some things didn't work out, and he ended up basically like having a CP but having no band. Right. Um, and he recruited Alex Levine. Um, who was like his 18-year-old brother-in-law <laughs> at the time, uh, and and then started looking for members. And we had um, the old label that this charming man and the first Gaslight record were on, XOXO Records, was an old friend of mine from Central Jersey named Jay Smalls, who um, was like an old hardcore kid I knew for a long time. Um, and he, he hooked it up. He knew I was kind of just doing a couple things but nothing too serious and he played me Brian's stuff I was automatically like attracted to it you know mm. like um, I had realized a couple years before that like if I want any sort of career in music I gotta find someone who can write songs and like somebody cause there had gotten to a point where like I kept being like a major thing in my bands where people were like oh you're really good and this and that and I'm like yo what about like my singer like what about this cause like i'm not fucking tommy lee and like i'm not gonna have the life i want like Mm. basically the life i want is just being able to play music full time you know and i'm like i don't see how this is happening unless i find people who can write really great songs so like when i heard it there was some you know i was much more of like a punk hardcore kid even then than i am now and like some of the music was like a little mid-tempo for me you Mm. know and stuff like that but i was like holy shit like this guy could sing and like these songs are cool and there's like chorus like every song has like a big ass chorus that's like hooky and like and some of the songs on in that including the earlier version of 1930 are on that record so yeah I joined and like we were this charming man for a while and wrote a bunch of songs um, and then we went on tour and the original guitar player from that dropped off for again, long story, but and that's I had previously been in bands with Alex Rosamilia and brought him in, and then that's when like we really started like clicking and like sounding a certain way, and that's when we had a chance to do another record, and we it was like the one time chance where we're like, all right, we could change our name if we want, like right now it's a new band, like we should probably do it, you know, and that's when we decided to like just new name and like everything fresh. And did like the three song demo as
0: gaslight very cool so what went into your first tour as gaslight anthem um
1: well i mean that was a cool thing that like at least like i brought to the table a little bit when we first started was like i had a lot of like miles under my belt already from some other bands i had done that mm-hmm. i had already toured with and also just like roadieing and stuff like i as was going out with bands to, like, drive, do merch, like, roadie. There were some friends from New Jersey that I was just like, yeah, whenever you're going out, like, I'll go. I just wanted to go on tour. Yeah. And I just, I didn't have anything much going on at home. I had quit school already. I was just working, you know, and basically always in my head just kind of biding time until I can do this full time, right. you know? That was, like, always where my head was at. Um, so when Gaslight started, like... And then, uh, to Brian also had done some touring already. Like he had been in a band called Lane Meyer from New Jersey who did mm-hmm. some touring and he was already touring his own bands a little bit. So like, we already knew what we were doing a little knew We had to get like a decent van knew how to like route a tour and, and do these things. And it was one of the reasons like Gaslight got going early on. We didn't have backing from anyone, but you know, we knew how to, get recorded, knew how to put stuff out. I was um, doing our original demos at my office. I used to work for the Daily Targum, which was a newspaper for Rutgers in New Brunswick. And I had an office with, like, five or six computers. And when we would shut down for the night, set up, like, CD-burning station with just, like, five computers on rotation, Mm. like, doing demos and stuff. You know, the whole, like, Staples and Office Max, like you know, printing the labels on sticker paper and getting them on and just, and then, you know, and then we had enough connections to like start booking tours and booking out of state and just getting going until other opportunities started coming. Um, And it was just us at first, uh, just us four. I forget the the style. It was an old Dodge that had like four bucket seats. So it was real comfortable actually. (laughs) Um, But you don't get away with that for long. Like once you have to start carrying merch and like shit like
0: that. Yeah. So 2007, Singer Swim comes out. You you tour that. Uh, when did you first start to know that like people were listening to what you guys were putting out and coming out for you guys? Because I know you guys were probably opening for a, a little bit. When did you start to feel, hey these people are coming to see us?
1: Well, I mean, I had. honestly, I think we had an insight. I definitely had an insight to it early on because I had spent a lot of years already like creating and forming and like pushing bands. And from the get go of like pushing these gaslight demos, it was the reaction was different. You know what I mean? It Mm. was. Like it was and I saw it. It was tangible. It was like where people used to want to help me out because my band was like pretty cool and they owed me a favor. Mm. Now they were like, yo, like, shit's cool. Like, how can I get involved? Like, how can I you know what I mean? Like Mm. people were they were warm to it in a different way where I knew like something different was going on like mm. that this was like worth really putting like everything towards like yeah. so that became clear to me at least early on where i was like full-on 100 percent in to gaslight like really early on like there was no hesitancy for mm. me like i was bulldozer like this was just the thing i'm like yeah. this is what i want like to fucking do it you know and then but like you said like a lot of the early tours were slogs, you know <laughs> they were like booked ourselves you know thirty forty day van tours, even longer sometimes um you know, no hospitality of any sort, <laughs> like uh you know sleeping wherever you can, you know it's very typical, it's not like some sob story or anything. It's what most bands do yeah um but I remember we we did do a couple cool opening tours, and then in oh. 7 or 8, eight maybe, we, we played the fest in Gainesville. Mm-hmm. And our show was, like, you know, sold out really quick. It was in a tiny place. Like, and, but I think it was the first time that these, like, little pockets of people from different cities, like the 5, 10 people who had been coming to our shows, mm. were now, like, all in one place. And the show, like, lit up. It was, like, crazy, you know, <laughs> yeah. where we played diner at the end of it, and the stage was just, like, <laughs> packed. I ended up, like, jumping off my kick drum, like, on top of everybody. Ended up kicking Brian in the head. <laughs> he, like, yelled at me later for it. Um, I think, and that was, like, the first time for me where I was, like, holy shit, like, this is, like, this is, like, a thing thing. You know what I mean? Like, this is, like, I think maybe in my head where I was, like, all right, like, like this could be, like, I, I never had the idea that we could be, um, like, a mainstream success. Mm-hmm. Like, that was never really in my head. Yeah. But at that time, too, I mean, I tell this story a lot because it's funny, but, like, me and Brian had a pact. Excuse me. Brian and I had a pact where, like, if we ever sold 10,000 records, we were both going to get throat tattoos. <laughs> and this is because of our, like, convoluted idea of, like, what the music industry was. Like, we really thought if you sold 10,000 records of one album, you were, like, set for life. Like, you had a fan base. You had money. Like, you were fine. Like, you could mm. do it, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that was a wake up call for us was when you're like, you're out there doing tours and you, you have a lot of like buzz going, but there's like, there's no like money, you know, not yet.
0: Right.
1: Um, no, no real money. Like that started coming in until later, you know,
0: do you make uh, the EP in 2008? Is that something that that you make while you're like touring or, or do you come back just kind of preparing for the next thing?
1: No, that one we recorded on tour. Yeah.
0: Um, how does that work for people that are just listening to this that aren't in the music business? How, because I know you hear, hear, like, you're, like, Ed Sheeran's on a bunch of bands recording while they're on tour. How How does that work? I
1: think it's hard to compare to these days because of, like, technology and, like, just how much easier it is to not only record but to also, like, get down and transfer ideas. You know what I mean? Like, you can literally have someone in the back of a van composing songs on a laptop you know what i mean and you show up to a studio and they're like almost done (laughs) you know back then it was like the only chance you really had to like you know jam stuff out you know and there was a lot of different ways we wrote like you know brian would have a part in an acoustic and we'd start working through something literally me like tapping on my legs and shit some stuff we're working on at home if you're doing your own shows you get to set up and do a little bit of a sound check every day, even at smaller places. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can like maybe run through some new stuff when you're doing that. And then we were between tours. We had like 10 days between tours and we found a place in Austin, like through recommendations that, Mm -hmm. uh, that would, would record us and um, stayed at a friend's house on his floor. Like when we did it, this guy, Che Arthur Still lives in Austin, and um, yeah, and spent. I think Senor took maybe three days, you know, two days to track, and I think actually it got mixed. Like while we were, you know, back on tour and like just listening to it and stuff. Wow. Um, so yeah, I mean, like that, and and because of it though, I mean, I do think uh, of all the gaslight things. I'm not saying it's like the best or something. It is probably the most like appropriate like capture of a proper like time because. Mm. There's mistakes all over it. Like it wasn't done to a click, you know, and but we were like right in the middle of tour and we were like in a really nice groove. So I think the band was just like sitting in this nice place when it happened, you know. Yeah, Yeah, I think it was a cool like a cool capture, I guess, of the time.
0: Well, the making of 59 Sound was definitely documented last year, I think. Yeah. The internet wrote everything the Robert yeah, uh, that Robert Mays got proper into it. As someone that works in sports, when I saw that he wrote that, I'm like, Mays, you're out here just doing it. Still- but but yeah, so you, you're on tour, you, or you join the loved ones on their tour. You're, you're opening for them, right? Mm-hmm. Just talk about that entire journey, just going cross country, LA, to record this record. I know. Um, I know that there's probably a lot, and yeah, a lot of it's been documented.
1: But. Yeah, yeah, and it, I mean, and now is like a long time ago too. That's where like, I you know, a lot of people are always like, "Yeah, life is short, right?" Like it's cruising by. I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know if it's just the way I see things or like what I've actually done, but like that feels like a really long time <laughs> ago, you know? Because yeah. like a lot has happened. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we were yeah, like you said, going going from tour to tour. Um, and for me personally it was very interesting because i was in the tail end of a a withering relationship and like again i know that was documented yeah. the thing but like the personal element of the story cannot be told for me without it because right. it was so crucial yeah you know? And even for the band, because the band was witnessing and even part of like all the crazy shit going on, you know, like they got their stuff thrown out of a house too, <laughs> not just me. Um, but we are on tour. We had, the, we had a lot of the record pretty mapped out already, you know, like we're very, uh, always been sort of a non-sentimental and fairly hardworking band when mm-hmm. we were like going full time. Like once a record was out, I mean, before it was even out, we were thinking already mm. about, like, what's going on and, like, starting to tinker. And and bands should, too, because you don't realize how long the cycles can be if you don't. Like, by the time it takes to, like, write, get it ready, record, and release an album can be a really long time, you know? So mm. if you, like, put a record out, like, it's not a good idea to, like rest on your laurels too long and like just be like yo that was awesome (laughs) like people are gonna forget about it fast and like you should like keep going you know for sure (laughs) so on that on that token like we were just we had firmly decided to just be a full-time band nobody had jobs like we were just fully committed to it so a lot of the stuff we had written and then you know we drove out to la after this like insane experience in austin and it definitely felt like a bizarre kind of like Escape to California thing, especially I think for East Coast kids, you know what I mean It mm. was like it was you know we'd been to l a before, but once you're living there and you're seeing like the day to day there are like a lot of like culture shock elements i mean it's quite different, mm. you know, just the normal way of living, and we were living in a a long term rental unit called the Oakwoods, which was like you know for like child actors and like <laughs> weird stuff like that again, which was kind of like a trip, you know weed was easy to get like like yeah just california paradise you know but then we just like we didn't like party it wasn't some la thing it was like all right like the record like we're Mm. here to do the record and started practicing with ted at a at a studio and yeah we were ready to record pretty fast and then just when we did it i mean we were literally in the van heading to the studio from our little apartment like early in the morning and then just head down like you know just working on it all night long um so the process like that is like yeah you're just like uh you're you're away from everything when you're in a city you don't know Mm. none of us were like like cool like party types so we weren't like going out in like the la (laughs) night and like doing that kind of shit you know so yeah yeah it was just really like kind of nerdy Mm. you know focused on the record kind of stuff that part of it's like Mm not a very fun story because we were just working i guess right. yeah
0: so then it comes out and it, it receives a lot more fanfare now now than it probably did For sure. back then yeah um which record release you kind of knew it was a moment when it happened versus seemed like a bigger deal in retrospect like like i'm, I'm assuming that the release of handwritten received more fanfare than like when you dropped either sink or swim or 59 sound
1: sure i mean but i think i think for me the scope changed on 59 sound mm. where like you know on sink or swim and stuff we were getting to a point that's like all right like we're like a good like successful little punk rock band mm. which like even in my head i'm like that's fine like i could even like do this like forever and i'll be mostly cool with that you know <laughs> And then 59 Sound came out and we started playing some shows on it. And then once it got released, especially like the whole thing changed after that. It just all of it, all of it jumped up to just like a bigger, bigger level.
0: Yeah.
1: And honestly, a level that none of us were familiar with. Mm. Um, like none of us had had experience in that kind of world. We never had to like navigate it. Like Like we didn't know. We were just like kind of waiting our way through cuz it was a scope that was bigger than us you know i did shows at a fucking elks lodge like you know someone's talking about a a back end deal of a 500 cap room in this place with all this stuff i'm like uh okay we got to learn this shit like, mm. um so that's when i got to a level that's like when i think like your band almost like in a strange way. Now that you say like to look back on it in retrospect, it's when like your band almost becomes like bigger than you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like things start to like spin in a bunch of different directions that you just can't control anymore. Mm. You know, when it's small, like everything is so literally just like four people discussing every move and like, and everything is so like focused into one direction and stuff like that. And now all of a sudden you got a lot of like a lot of new shit coming in. Like, The label's got more people working for it. You got a manager now. You have a booking agent. You have, oh wait, we have to actually like take care of our finances. We got to pay taxes on this (laughs) shit. Like we can't get away with that anymore. You know, and like like just weird, Mm -hmm. uh, like the belly of it that like that kind of sucks. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's not the fun part for sure, but it's also a good problem to have because it means people like once money starts coming, if you don't learn how to like sort out your own money, someone else is just going to take it. You know, that's (laughs) what I learned about the music industry or probably any industry, I guess, in that regard. But like, you know, there's a lot of like bands who are just floating through the creative process, getting fucking worked Mm. like, and, uh, or taking money they don't need and like getting in debt in ways they don't understand. And, and, uh, I think that's one good thing about the fact that like we were a little older when it happened was like I think we realized how special it was and how much we need to actually like manage what we got going on because like yeah this might not like yeah it's, yeah it's it's special like our windows open I was I was already like twenty six twenty seven I, yeah. I quit like a full time job to like do gaslight full time like mm. like this was like almost yeah. like hey, this is like my last chance or I got to do something else, you know? Yeah. So
0: like... Oh. How many times have you felt that way? Like it's like your your last chance? Because I feel like in your early 20s, that's like a common theme. Yeah. Yo, this is my last chance.
1: I know. Another thing about retrospect thinking is like I definitely went into Gaslight saying, yo, this is my last one. Like for sure, my last one. But I did say it prior to Gaslight. Um, so I got to assume that like I probably would have tried again because I'm just... As I'm learning about myself, I'm sort of... Uh, ill-equipped to maybe do anything else in this world
0: <laughs> well i mean you got the writing you got the podcast yeah I yeah think
1: working, that, on, it. working yeah. on it i just need the honorary degree that's what i'm working on <laughs> from,
0: from it doesn't Rutgers. matter no it doesn't <laughs> matter no
1: Rutgers, i think is too ambitious that's like a real college um no i just want someone at some point in my life to be like his accomplishments merit this degree but i want to do zero work for it this is like my plan for college now
0: that's how i tried to get through college too but unfortunately go there, well. there's a thing called finals oh, law, but, okay. uh, so then you go then you guys go on to the american slang how is that different than making the 59 sound
1: we were home oh. to write most of american mm-hmm. slang and we actually a good friend of mine kyle was one of the first guys we knew who just like had a A kid in a house Mm. um, and he had sort of a centralized point because at that point Alex and I were up here and the two other guys were down in um, by the beach by Mm. then so he lived uh, in like the sort of um, like Old Bridge Sayreville area and had a house and we would drive separately usually drive down to his house every day and then just practice at his house and write American slang so we were like trapped in our friend's basement doing American slang. And we wrote most of it there. Mm. Um, But as far as, like, you know, it was the same label, I don't think we got, like, much bigger or anything after American slang. Like, I think American slang at that, we were, like, it was, we wanted to maintain, like, what we had, you know what I mean? I mean, at some point along the way, I don't know, like, it's one of the things I, I almost, like, regret looking back on it now is, like, with every record I can find someone who convinced me or someone else in the band that like we could be something we never were gonna be. And that can lead to like a very successful thing becoming disappointing mm. if you put these strange expectations on it. And I think by American slang those types of things started to really come into the camp. Like the idea that like people were infecting our minds with the idea that like oh you could be like The next great American rock band You know like these mantles People like to do and Like like it or not you can be the most confident Motherfucker in the world Or know exactly what you want to do the most But things start to trickle in And get a little more confusing as a result So I think like at that point With American slang it was about like Just like focusing And like staying who we were We had an opportunity at that point To go to almost any major we wanted But like we're like let's finish our deal with side one mm. like we signed a contract they did good on us on 59 sound these majors still seem kind of murky to us mm. like we're not comfortable so mm. we're like let's do another one like let's we will be in an even better position in a couple years you know yeah um and yeah that was kind of the vibe with american slang and then the touring was great like record went well you know
0: what are some of those meetings like that you probably had with, like, those, like, majors that are, like, trying to convince you to sign? Because I, I feel like the average person kind of pictures, you know, in, like, Entourage when, like, Vince is getting courted by all the laborers yeah. kind of like a Nike, Coca-Cola, right. Gaslight Amber.
1: I mean, there's some elements of it that are like that, you know. I think the people who had their finger on the pulse of the kind of ban they were trying to sign, like, didn't do that <laughs> stuff. Because they knew it would like freak people like us out Which it did um, There was like a couple Presentations we went to At like a label office that had like Big like posters of us And stuff like walking in One of which Somebody at the office googled The wrong image for Alex Rosamelia And had some other guy On this giant blow up And like Alex didn't see it And we're like yo don't tell him. And, like, and then we're also, like, should we say something? Like, no, someone will get fired. Like, so he just never said anything about it. Um, Yeah, some weird shit like that. But more often than not, it's, like, a a restaurant. I mean, you can kind of, like, you can choose, basically. If you're, like, we need to meet at the office. We need to meet in this city. Like, they'll do it. And we're just, like, so nerdy that, like, just be, like, yeah, we'll just get something to eat around New Jersey, you know? And then usually it's, like, two guys show up. The pitch is pretty similar. I mean, like, especially at the time, a lot of the labels have very similar kind of constructs in place as far as like a lot of it's just like personal relationships and like how people vibe with you. I, I remember me and we wanted to, at one of these meetings, we're like, yeah, we're going to rack up a thousand dollar tap. Like, we have to. Like, Motley Crue did like a hundred thousand. Like, we can do a thousand dollars. Like, we'll try. We never pulled it up because we are always just like in and out too quick yeah. you know what i mean like just nobody committed to the night long enough to like be like let's go for drinks or something you know we basically finished dinner brian doesn't really drink very heavy you know if yeah. he does he has a beer or two so like i'm trying to drink like a 60 dollars scotch to like you know like yeah. get the tab up and before you know it brian spent like
0: $14 that needs to leave. I'm like, "Come on, dude." Like, <laughs> so you're telling me when they make the Gas Anthem movie, there's not going to be a role for Paul giamatti cuz he seems to have no. kind of found that niche Oh, all. I know.
1: He's every movie. Wait, is it 3 now? I think cuz cuz he he did the
0: Beach Boys one. Right? Then he did True. Uh, uh,
1: right? Yeah, I and then it- uh and then uh Public Enemy.
0: oh yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, Public Enemy too. <laughs> um now
1: our first manager was a duo um one was a pretty short lesbian woman uh and the other was a really really tall dude like couple inches taller than me so i can't see the Giamatti like playing in that yeah um maybe uh what's his face Who plays thanos
0: oh oh my gosh you're right <laughs> yeah yeah he could do it oh my gosh all right so after american slang you guys signed with mercury that show at convention hall was iconic did things change greatly after signing with mercury or was it kind of just business as usual
1: no i mean honestly like um got paid you know it was was like the first time it was like it was like uh in a sports reference it's like we got off the rookie contract basically and and you got your max deal yeah (laughs) we were like we were we were free agents and we got to like milk it and honestly it like That was when, like, we weren't living off Gaslight, and Gaslight literally, like, made our lives. Which, again, in retrospect, I can only see, you know, clearly now. Mm. But, like, I mean, I don't know if any of us have, like, houses, families, you know. Like, I remember at one point, like, we all showed up, and we finally got, like, a car. We all had, like, like, no one had cars. Like, we, we couldn't even afford our own vans and stuff. So it was, like, just this, like... Nobody too excessive, you know, like... But mm. just, like, this idea that, like, holy shit, like... just made a little bit of, like, real money. Like, this is, like, real money, you know? Um, So that changed where, like... When that comes in, your personal life changes greatly. And other things, like, start coming into play that, again... Make, you know, the uh, four guys in a room... You know, barreling down, you know, the the tunnel in the same direction makes it harder again you know Mm -hmm. what I mean like like there's just more at play uh when when that stuff starts to come Mm -hmm. but then again at that time everything jumped up one extra level too where like um you know there's a different kind of expectation you you know even like it's been brought up to me a number of times and it was something Gaslight had to figure out was once you start playing certain size rooms how responsible are you to put on a show You know what I mean? Like we only ever felt responsible to adequately and energetically play our music and play it well. Mm. You know what I mean? That was the expectation for us. Like, and not that it was easy, but like fairly simple. And then you're getting into these giant rooms where like four dudes on a stage, like kind of looks small, Mm. you know, especially when no one's dressing up and there's nothing cool. Maybe have a backdrop. And then it's like, oh, do we need like lights? Do we need a light guy? I was about to ask you about like, that, because it was
0: noticeable when you guys went yeah. with just the backdrop. Do we need do lights? we need
1: things yeah. like that? Do we you know, like and do we need inner uh, interior monitors? Do we need like, you know, all these different things that start to be like, you know, even you have uh, you take on a sound guy who is like more professional than you. He's worked with like huge artists and he's like, hey, you should really get an interior system. Which costs fucking $10,000, you know what I mean? Like, they're insane. Even when you get deals for them, you don't even know if you'll like it. Like, it's crazy shit. Yes. And, like, this is why these rigs and stuff, like these cases and stuff, yeah. get resold. Like, you see cases with other bands' names on them and other bands' possessions yeah. constantly. Mm-hmm. And it's because of what happened to us. Mm. I know exactly where it comes from now. <laughs> it comes from you having, like, four or five guys working for you now, saying they need x x and x to like run the show every day and they do so much fucking work it's like hard to be like nah like you don't need that shit fuck you you know and then just things again like grow to like an interesting scale and that's still a question i pose is like is there a responsibility if you're charging x amount for a ticket and bring it into a room to entertain to do a show you know i remember a show years ago that Gaslight opened for the Foo Fighters in um, Denmark. And I was, like, so stoked to play this show. Like, uh, there had been a festival we played with the Foo Fighters, like, opening for them a year or two before, and it was, like, one of the very few Gaslight shows in existence I missed because I had to come back for a funeral. Mm. And somebody, like, filled in, like, four songs. Someone else filled another four mm. songs, and it was very, like... Awkward night to play Mm -hmm. And of course it was a night Dave fucking Grohl Was standing on the side of the stage watching Gaslight You know The night I wasn't fucking there I was going crazy I was like fuck Um, So we we played them again Mm -hmm. And for any number of reasons Like travel and time of day And this and that Like vibe just wasn't great that day Mm -hmm. And Brian had kind of like an off show And he was a little quiet And me being like Extremely self-righteous in those days Like I got into it with brian i was like yo what the fuck like you know like and i didn't have a nice way of talking either so you know and like i was like come on man you know like like with this this and like no shit you know i was into this whole like black flag thing where like even if there's three people there you're like spitting in their fucking face and like you know i just had maybe a bit of like a uh naive way of looking at it and uh yeah, you know, one thing Brian explained to me there is like, he's like, like, what happens to you when you have like a bad show? I'm like, or like, don't feel good or something. I'm like, yeah, you know, I put my head down, basically hide behind my hair and just do my job. I, you know, I play drums similarly, but I don't really like perform. I have like some nights like that, you know, and he doesn't have that option because he's so exposed. Right. He's talking. He's like actually communicating with people and this and that. And I totally changed my mind after that. I did i was mm. like i was like you know what's even cooler than like a perfect show every night is people going to actually see live music played by humans mm. you know what i mean like mm. like if someone's off then you're off yeah and what you do owe them is what we said you energetically play the music they came to see and you play it well
0: yeah. but you
1: don't owe them the other stuff right and if you're feeling great one night yo fucking ham it up for half an hour i'll sit back there <laughs> laughing and if you don't like, we'll rip through it like twenty straight yeah. songs. Like I don't care. Um, and you know, it took a while to get to that point, but like, like of understanding. But um, I think there's an element that that comes back to it, which is like, like how much do you owe, and what is just like even like awkward. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you have no lights at Barclays Center, yeah, people are just gonna be like, this just looks weird. Right. You know, were they trying to be broody? <laughs> like you know, so. So stuff like that comes into play. We mm. actually didn't hire a full-on light guy and light rig until Get Hurt. Oh wow! Because Get Hurt was when, even during Handwritten, we were like, still really tied to our ethos. You know what I mean? And it, it Get Hurt, it got to a point we were almost like, all right, like if we're being put in this box anyway, let's just go for it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Like a little bit. Yeah. Like and and if we're playing these giant places, like let bring a light guy let's bring a light rig like mm. let's see what happens and we ended up not we brought a great guy who's like <laughs> extremely talented and did this like insanely cool stuff during our show but it just like wasn't like the right fit didn't yeah. look right you know but you don't know that until you try it i yeah. guess you know like so that was all like the learning curves of mm. just going again it was like we only really trusted ourselves the most mm-hmm. and then like but because of it like no one has experience and yeah. you kind of have to like just figure it out as you go.
0: When you got to like the get hurt point was there was it kind of a re-energized kind of fuck you like because it was like like when you're grinding and like coming up there's like a, well like none of these people know who we are but by the time you got to that point with like the expectations did that kind of was it the same kind of fuck you or was like a different kind?
1: I mean, I don't I don't think there was ever, like, a fuck you attitude with it. Maybe towards, like, the industry a little bit, mm-hmm. but, like, certainly never towards, like, the receiving audience or something. I think, for us, like, if any reaction came from more of a place of, like, vulnerability mm-hmm. than fuck you, yeah. you know? Like, uh, I think the reaction to, to critique in our camp has taken much more, like... Maybe it's fuck you on the surface because yeah. we're from Jersey, you know, but on the inside, it's not looking like <laughs> yeah. that, you know what I mean? So, no, that shit, that shit's real. I mean, um, it, it's an unusual thing about, like, being opened up to the court of public opinion, you know what I mean? Like, you have to have an extreme confidence in what you're doing to be able to brush off the critics. And if you don't have that extreme confidence, then you start to, like, yeah. scratch your head when you hear it, you know? Yeah. Um and I think that's maybe a little bit of a point we got to with Get Hurt. It was like I don't think we were as confident about that record for a number of reasons and maybe it like hurt a little worse, you know. Yeah.
0: When was uh, the first time you heard the band on the radio cuz I got to tell you uh my brother was interning at somewhere in LA. Uh, I think this was around the time that Handwritten came out. And uh I heard 45 on K-Rock and I was like, "What the?"
1: Yeah, that was crazy. That was crazy.
0: I mean, at that point, like, so that's where I talk
1: about knowing the belly of the beast is like, I know like what the woman at the label was doing to get that on the radio. Mm. And she was hustling. You know what (laughs) I mean? Like she had to go to like, you go to like the way it used to work in the radio business where these like radio people at labels go to the station and like, present a meeting with like a record player and chocolates and <laughs> drinks and like this whole thing and play the song and try to like mm. boost it to get it onto the radio like crazy shit and i'm like all right they finally played it i guess after all that you know yeah. <laughs> after all those hand <laughs> Like um but no i definitely heard it before that like uh, you know maybe like um What's that one? The Rat? Oh, yeah. Like, and stuff yeah. like that. You In know. Belmar, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they were playing it, like, early on. You know, you'd find, like, someone at, like, SOU or, like, mm. even the Rockers radio stations. Yeah. Like, funny stuff like that. You'd hear it, like, poking poking around. Yeah. I think the cool thing for it, when we, uh, we made it into a video game, which was cool. We were oh, on yeah. Skate 2. Yeah. Yeah. That was, like, that
0: was a cool thing for us, was to be on the video game, for sure. Oh, my God. When the band decided to go on on hiatus, what was that conversation like? Um,
1: long. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like one thing where it was just like someone's like, "Yo, Eureka! Like this is what we need to do." You know, like there was a, a, a for us like a sort of a a clear like series of events where it just like could have been no, not clear, um, but. But it it was something conversational over time. Like it wasn't just like one thing where somebody like made some massive ultimatum that everyone had to follow. Mm -hmm. It was just like, I mean, we didn't do it in the middle of a record cycle. We still made it to the end. You know, we (laughs) toured the cycle. We did the record. And then it was like, instead of jumping right back into another cycle of recording another record and going on tour for like a year and a half, like it's back off. You know what I mean? And, like, see what the fuck is going on and, like, understand the landscape again. And um, that was very well discussed, you know? Um, for all the years, like, like, I've had some long talks with a lot of these guys, you know, where, like, the idea of, like, what you can be and should be and want to be, you know, was always, like, fairly well communicated. And mm. um, so, yeah, it was, it was a conscious decision between everyone. Mm. Um, it was, like... Is like, let's take this time to to sort it out and not not just, like, cover your eyes and, and you know, keep yeah. driving. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and that's the reason, like, why we're still friendly with each other and there was no, like, big fallout. We didn't fuck over a label. We didn't fuck over anyone we worked for because, yeah. you know, we fulfilled all of our obligations and shit like that. Yeah. And then it was just, like, the idea that instead of becoming a a carousel or just like a circus act where you're just kind of going through the motions and taking money, you know, um, that until there's something left to say and wanting to say it in a real and genuine way, then like, let's, let's back off of this for a little while. I mean, to me personally, like, you know, aside from like family or people or something like that, like there's nothing more important to me in the world than that band, you know, like, my fucking baby like from the ground up till now like there's nothing that means more to me than that like it's everything and the thing to me with that is like i grew up like loving rock and roll like because of my family and my mom like from a really really young age and like i'm super cognizant of like the rock and roll narrative you know what i mean like i've seen so many of these narratives play out that i'm really cognizant of like the mistakes and the triumphs of other bands and what they did right and wrong. And, um, and that being said, even though it's been difficult for a bunch of other reasons, I'm, I'm wholly confident in the decision we made for like a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. And I still am. Yeah. Yeah. And until something really strikes where like this band really wants to do something and it's not just like some, shell of itself Mm. then then i'm willing to do it you know like yeah i just want it to be fucking great man that's it (laughs) and i don't want to cheapen something i love so much you know
0: that said mercy union you guys are I mean, oh thanks it, Danny. it's like a jersey like all-star band right? <laughs> you, you know how when you play like little league there'll be like all-star teams all that's right. essentially what it like the, the county crazy. club Yeah, yeah, yeah the like, county like, the team?
1: <laughs> nice i know
0: i could never make the county team <laughs> so that's great but uh how did that all all start i had
1: my son who was uh actually like th- over three months premature and it was like sort of a really gnarly situation that required a good six months of like everyday attention you know uh and my wife and i were starting to like get settled back in like you know i'm starting to want to play more and then we randomly had another one Um, so it just got kind of crazy kind of fast and i was like since you know i don't have a standard nine to five and i can make certain schedules i was i do and i still do some like woodworking and i work in like a furniture shop but And I was talking to Jared and I knew Jared was like getting ready for like record number two for his solo stuff. Mm -hmm. And he lives in Bayonne, you know, just 15 minutes away, not even. And, um, I was like, yo, like I, I'm pretty bored musically. (laughs) Like, and I have, I have some time, especially during the days, like you live close, like I'll help you work on your new record. You know, I'm like, you got songs, like you got some stuff and, so it started like that where Jared's like, Yeah, sure, you know? And we would literally like meet up during like nap time. You know, I'd be like, Yo, can you do like one to three? And you'd be like, Yeah, sure, you know? And we'd like squeeze in these little yeah. sessions and uh and then I ended up like just in this environment, like I it's tongue in cheek, but I call it the peace pocket because I think it's funny. Yeah. And like uh the idea that like this is just like an open place to like no ideas like off-limits, you know what I mean? We'll try everything, like, everything's cool. And, you know, under that umbrella, like, we started just, like, writing. Um And I ended up, like, writing a lot of parts, and then we ended up writing a lot of songs together and sort of wound up in a bit of a, all right, what are we going to do with this kind of thing? We have almost, like, a record worth of material. And, you know, at the time, I'm not really willing to be, like, drummer for like a guy yet like i just always like saw myself and see myself as like a band guy for some reason um and and i was like yeah like i'm like this is awesome like i love this record what we did i'm like i'm like if it's your solo record like i'm gonna like i'll play drums on the record and then i'll probably be out you know Mm -hmm. like i'm not gonna like do a live like that and then it came up to like maybe just do a band instead yeah and that's when we decided to do a thing and like He knew Nick, the bass player, um, was a good friend from Bayonne. And then we knew Rocky from Let Me Run, you know, for like years and years. And he jumped in and, yeah, we finished the record pretty fast and went to Pete Steinkoff from the Souls in Asbury to to put the record down. So, I mean, the record is literally like the first 12 songs we wrote. I mean, it's almost like a demo in some ways, but I guess because of... Like you said, since it's a bunch of people who have done this stuff before, your demos actually become releases now <laughs> a little bit, you know. Um, but yeah, and then it turned into like a thing like that just got realer and realer, you know. Now did those tours that went really well, went to England, went to Germany, did good tours there, and now I'm just working on the next record, yeah.
0: That is Benny Horowitz drummer of the Gaslight Anthem, Mercy Union. You can follow him on Twitter at Benny Horowitz1. Big thanks to him for stopping by. Been a big gaslight fan for a long time. Love Mercy Union too. So that, that was a great thrill. Plenty of ways to get in contact with the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Denny underscore Gallagher at just Denny Gallagher on Instagram. You can follow Later Podcast on Instagram. And you can email the show at laterpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Once again, be sure to go pick up Knights in White Castle coming out August 20th. Or if you're listening to it after, go pick it up. You have no reason not to. Steve's awesome. Ball and Tim Podcast is awesome. And in that vein, I hear Tom, Dick, and Harry warming up. Thank you guys so much for listening, and until next time, later.